This episode of the Oral History Podcast is sponsored by The Booklist Reader, a book blog offering opinion, news, and lists from the bespectacled word nerds at Booklist Magazine and Booklist Online. Whether you're seeking fresh fodder for your book group or audiobooks to help while away your commute, you're sure to find what you need at www.booklistreader.com. While you're there, make sure you sign up to receive daily updates via email. They're like love letters for your inbox. My nipples twitched in anticipation. Hey, Carrie, what are you reading right now? Um, well, I'm not reading the school newsletter from my kids' middle school. I'll tell you that. Um, what? <laughs> the smarter than you, the smarter you are. Woo, back to school. Uh, okay, um, I'm in the middle of two nonfiction books right now. One is called uh, Women in Clothes, and it's a compilation by Sheila Hetty, Heidi Shulovitz, and Leanne Shapton. Um, and it's basically just about how women feel about their clothes and appearance. And um, it's just... It's a really interesting book, and you don't really have to read it in order. It's just women talking about clothes and their favorite kinds of clothes and blah, blah, blah. What what they mean by style and what they mean by fashion. It's really weird. Anyway, and then I'm reading this other one called Unbroken Brain, A Revolutionary New Way of Understanding Addiction by Maya Salovitz, which is about how how basically that addiction is a learning disorder or it's a it's about learning it's a learned behavior and it's keyed into brain development and also that 12-step programs are a really cheap way that to palm off real care that addicts and alcoholics need and that there needs to be more uh, support for people with addiction instead of just oh i'll go to a 12-step group that's free and hope that works um it's really interesting but the last young adult novel I read, I should mention, was The Careful Undressing of Love by Corianne Haydu, um, which was beautiful. And I'm sorry you have to wait until January to read it. Um, I, I actually uh, just put that on my Edelweiss uh, request list. So hopefully I'll get to read it before January. Um, but I'm, yeah, or I'll get an arc at the bookstore. So I can I, give you one. I can give you, I can give well, you don't mail it. Let me see if I can get it. Um, okay. I'm excited to read that too. Um, what, what are you reading? I am reading, um, well, I just finished The Imperfectionist by Tom Rockman, um, which is essentially, I would almost say it was like a, a series of short stories, but they're all, uh, vignettes, uh, around these people who work at this, uh, newspaper in Rome. And, um, they're, you know, like different people working for the newspaper and, uh, it's kind of fascinating how it's structured. Um, and some of the stories and vignettes are like really riveting and some of them you're like, what? That doesn't even make sense. Um, but it was overall, (laughs) I really liked it. I just thought structurally it was super smart. Um, and I enjoyed it. And um, right now, I'm actually reading a couple books right now. Um, uh, I just started um, Underground Railroad, which you know is that uh, Colson Whitehead book. Um, and it's very good, very difficult, good, good, good book, though. Um, and then um, during my insomnia read is a memoir, memoir um, by Oki <laughs> Oki Nadibi called Never Look an American in the Eye, Flying Turtles, Colonial Ghosts, and the Making of a Nigerian American. Um, And it's also super interesting. Um, He has been like a longtime journalist and just his perspectives of things are fascinating. Um, So that's a good 
good one. Um, and the last YA book I read, um, I've read a, a couple, but I feel like the last very noteworthy YA book I read was um, Sonia Patel's forthcoming Rainy Patel in Full Effect. Oh, I've um, heard good things which, about yes, that. Yes, you know that's my Morris pick. My Morris pick for the year. Um, wow. We'll see. Yeah. So, yeah, that's it. Okay, well, just a reminder for our listeners, we're doing a more in-depth companion piece with most of our podcasts, so you can subscribe to our tiny letter with each one, which we link in the show notes, Um, and you can subscribe if you're interested. Usually, each tiny letter is just an extended riff on the topic of the episode, so if you want more, you should consider subscribing. Okay. Um, Also, uh, for some time now, um, we've been getting notes from people about the ways that sexual content in YA books have been censored, suppressed, or challenged in one way or another. Um, Teachers, librarians, editors, authors um, have all reached out, or we've heard uh, several apocryphal stories um, to talk about how this has happened in their work. And we are interested in um, wanting to thoroughly engage in this topic for a podcast. So we are making an official call for more of these stories um, because we think it seems pretty grossly unfair that a behavioral a behavior as universal and fascinating as sexual identity and behavior is being kind of swept aside by um, people's prudish unwillingness to open the discussion up. Um, so we want to hear your stories and we want to talk about them. Um, and if you um, would like those to be anonymous, um, don't. That is totally fine. We can keep that that way. Um, but we're uh, ultimately sort of tired of people who refuse to engage on the topic of sex um, and and kind of give it way more power than it necessarily needs to have. Um, and we want to talk about ways to push back against that um, in the spirit of normalizing sex for people of all ages. So send us your stories, your little apocryphal stories or your own things that have happened to you um and that would be at feedback at the oral history podcast.com cool okay today's topic is a craft talk on a few things you may have heard us discuss before probably on twitter or in blog posts or maybe even on panels um but we like to address them in a podcast format because we do talk about this a lot don't we Krista? yeah i feel like well mostly on our dog walks our daily dog right. Walks. <laughs> right um well specifically we want to address the issue of writing teenage sex and how it's different from writing romance novel sex and we like to pose some questions for writers to compl- contemplate on how they can do this um We'd like to talk about ways a YA sex scene might not be working and how to go about creating an authentic sex scene for a young adult audience or even whether or not we should be attempting to do that. Um, a lot of times, if you've been in a grad program or listened to other craft talks, they're, they're very prescriptive, telling you what to do, do's and don'ts. But what we'd like to do is raise some questions for people to consider as they read and write and have these questions guide them in their analysis of a book or in their creation of a story. Um, because we think that being thoughtful about sex, pressing against biases and assumptions and cliches, leads to better writing and more realistic depictions that give us more to discuss. And the more we can discuss, the more we can know about ourselves. So 
Yay! Yay! Ready? Craft talk! Woohoo! Yay! Yeah. Um, yes, I am super excited about this craft talk only because I feel like uh, we do get to talk about it in forums, and, and yet I'm not sure we've totally, um, I guess, exhausted it in terms of discussing it on this podcast in, in this way. Um, and, and particularly, I think, Carrie, how this started for the two of us when we first kind of came up with this idea was... A discussion about, um, I think, uh, pretty frequently people give us recommendations for novels that they're like, oh, here's a YA novel. It has this these sex scenes in it. And then you and I read them and go, huh, well, that kind of reads as a romance, <laughs> a romance right. novel. And, and we really want to kind of speak to the point of difference, particularly if you as a writer are working on your craft and you're wanting to, to get this right or to get it authentic or to start, you know, putting this content in your material to start thinking about this in terms of how teenagers would look at it. Um, and so I kind of want to talk a little bit about how traditional romance novels handle sex. And and what I mean by traditional romance novels here is sort of the adult, uh, in the adult world, the whether it's, you know, it could be a cross genre, so it could be contemporary romance or erotic romance or, you know, BDSM or fantasy. Um, but we're talking about like sort of the adult romance novels um, and that genre. Um, and I guess uh, maybe, Carrie, you and I can kind of both talk a little bit about what we've seen in um, uh, traditional romance novels. Um, and I guess I'll just, you know, throw that out there um, that you feel like is sort of in the toolbox of, um, which I guess is I should caveat this to say, I don't think that uh, traditional romance novels have, you know, like are all the same or that it's easy in any way to write no. sex scenes in traditional romance novels. Um, I wouldn't keep reading them if I thought that they were all the same. Um, and right. I love them and I know you love them as much as I love them. Um, but, uh, there are some sort of things in the romance toolbox that I feel like see, we will occasionally, or you know, more than occasionally, stumble on in YA and think, "Huh, that feels like it, it belongs more in sort of the romance world." Um, and and some of those for me are like really, really descriptive language language that feels. Um, well, I guess what I would say is like feels sort of varsity level. Um, there's ways of describing orgasms, and and there are you know myriad ways of describing orgasms in romance novels. But frequently, they're you know they involve like you know hitting a peak or a crest or some sort of waves or fire or like electricity, electricity, all this really, really descriptive language um, that is, uh, you know, it is uh, to me, not anything I would have as a teenager have in my own toolbox. Like when I stumbled upon my first orgasm, which, you know, was by myself, um, I wasn't thinking about waves or, or, you know, you know, flying over a peak or any of that nonsense I was like oh I'm twitching <laughs> like that's how I thought of it right. um, and I don't know how you thought of it but it's one of those things that I think oh I didn't even have a handle on any of that kind of language even though by that time I had been reading romance novels um so that's one thing that I have noticed about sort of the the romance sex scene what would you say in your sort of in your romance reading I would say, I don't want to say it's choreographed, but I feel as if the 
the writers of these scenes tend to want us to see every move. So they show us every button that comes undone and every time uh, someone touches a new part of the body. And this is, it's kind of exhaustive in its uh, tracking of the movement because the point is to create an imaginative imaginative porn scene in the reader's mind. It's not to create a series of impressions. It's really to uh, let us unspool that in our heads visually. And so that's why we know what color the nipples are and, you know, the type of uh, sigh that the man makes or uh, the way his uh, jaw twitched when someone did this or that. And so there's just a lot of detail. And I'm not saying there's too much detail. I think you have to have a lot of that detail in order to pull that that trick off of creating a real life porn movie in someone's head. But there's just so much information. And like, if you go and look through a typical sex scene in a romance book, it's usually like 10 pages. You know, they're talking about they start kissing, you know, until the afterglow at the end. And so there's just a lot there. Um, you do. It, well, and I, it, it makes you think almost not to say like to compare it to sports, but you do get a play by play in the way that it feels um, slightly voyeuristic in this way that you mm-hmm. are not uh, necessarily like s- inside the skin of the hero and heroine or the heroine and heroine or the hero and hero you're not inside that skin you're viewing it and so then that's why you get to see sort of goosebumps and to really um sort of have that it's very gazy i guess is what i would say there's a lot of gaze with with that kind of thing and so which is why women love it because we're not allowed look in a lot of ways. We're not trained to look and enjoy what we see. Um, and so the the point of it is to let us voyeur view it and gaze exactly like that. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. Uh, also, too, um, I would say, obviously, one of the things that I have seen um, in romance novels is just the level of experience, right? We're talking about mm-hmm. like people who have uh, it, it, most of the time, someone ha- has sort of a varsity level of experience, or um, you know, if there's a virgin, usually the partner is going to be the one who has a varsity level. So there's sort of a talk through how this. Or if both people, like on the rare, rare times when I will see like both people who are virgins, it still feels like they're they have a level of knowledge, like a knowledge based that doesn't feel like, you know, 14-year-old me ever had. Um, even at that point, like, as a 14-year-old, I, you know, I had I had rounded some bases already. Right. But even then, like, I didn't have a knowledge base. There were certain things that were, like, gaping holes in my own um, just sexual education, you know, period. And so uh, I think in, no- in romance novels, a lot of times you'll see someone who just has like a really a varsity level of experience. And then, you know, or I always sort of laugh at the historical romances where the um, there's always, and it tends to be like if there's a female virgin and there's a, you know, a rake, Who's, like, right. who's been with courtesans or some other thing, right? That you're going to have the, the situation where, um, you know, she either has like 
you know, she's sort of a blue stocking and has an obscene amount of like scientific knowledge, but nothing real concrete physically, or she's, you know, she's totally has no experience. And so he has to work her through the every little, you know, point of that and sort of play by play and get her ready and all of that other stuff that happens. And of course, that's often frequently because, you know, she's had a parent or someone who's just told her, like, you know, grin and bear it, lift your, your, your night dress up. And that's all you have to do. And they have, well, like, you know, no no uh, real knowledge at all. And then there's the hero who is going to come in and kind of walk her through that. There are some, uh, these are typically heterosexual romances that I'm thinking of, but there, there are some uh, male virgin heroes in some of these books. And the difference isn't that, oh, you know, well, you have to plow through a million brothels as you're marauding the continent as some sort of soldier of fortune. So that's how you gain all your knowledge. But like the virgin heroes even have, and the virgin women in these books, they have not maybe experience in the techniques and whatever, but they have kind of a, they are, they know they're adults. They feel comfortable as adults. They know how to pretend, uh, I guess, even if they are fearful of something, they know how to uh, comport themselves in a way that is adult, I guess. And so even if they don't know what they're doing, they still have a uh, presence that feels like their knees aren't knocking or, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, they, and also, too, I wonder if, um, I mean, and we'll get into this in a little bit, but I wonder, too, if there's just a little bit of a comfort in your own skin, um, yeah. you know, that, that, that they're not having sort of the self-consciousness of hormonally changing, but instead they've already, you know, they've had boobs for quite some time already. They've had, you know, hair on their junk. They've had all the these things already, you know, for a long right. time. And so there's not necessarily like all of the, the self-consciousness about body or they just have other life experience, which makes, even if they're virgins, that makes that feel like less of a big deal. You know, it's sort of yeah. like, yeah, I mean, remember that book that I, I read? Um, it was the Maiden Lane one. It was one of those Maiden Lane ones, the Elizabeth Hoyt one. And I said, oh, the the, vir- the male virgin is the best. But of course, like, he, and he's so great in it. I mean, it's a great male virgin story. Um, and I will have to look it up so we can put it in the show notes. But the point of the whole thing is he's also like the ghost of St. Giles. So every right. night he's like out, like, you know, killing criminals and, and saving <laughs> infants from, from the work and all this stuff. But right. in, in the meantime, he out happens to be like a, a, you know, a male virgin. Um, so again, like that's the idea that there's experience there, even if it's not sexual experience. Sure. And similarly, usually in these books, um, the sexual identity is more solidified. Um, maybe they've kissed a few people or kind of been comfortable enough in their fantasy life to know what they want. Um, so sexual identity isn't something that's like kind of amorphous and waiting to uh, kind of gather strength. And so um, it's not that it's totally solidified, but it's Generally, the person's just been around longer, so has a little bit more comfort and knowledge about what they want, even if they've never had sexual experiences. That is another yeah. thing. Well, yeah, that's a good point. Like, they have a solid idea of attraction. Even, I mean, I'm curious about what you think about sort of the the N.A., um, which is, you know, sort of the bridge between young adult and, and you know, 
solid contemporary romance is sort of the N.A. stuff, where I read a lot of male-male new adult books, and um, there I feel like there's more sort of working through sexual identity, although those tend to also be stories where, you know, if it's going to be a bi guy, that he's known for a while that he's interested in guys you know, but he yeah. maybe hasn't had any experience with them yet. So that would be, I guess, the bridge of that is that it's not like he's uncertain. Of, you know, he's not discovering that he likes guys suddenly. It seems like he's known that for a while, and then he's sort of bridging over, at least in the good ones. Would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. Well, and also, the other thing that we see with romance in the traditional sense is generally speaking when the sex scenes happen or the sexual content happens in the book, there's generally privacy space. There's not a lot of constraints on time. Um, Often even in historical romances, often these, the couple is married. And so they are uh, technically allowed to be having sex. Um, in contemporary romance, we see the the man always will have some sort of condom, so uh, or the woman will have birth control, and so there are, are uh, access to that is easy, affordable, possible, you know, available in the nightstand. Um, so that's another; those are small details, which we'll explain in a little bit. But those things matter because that's how you can have like a really, you know, a 10 page sex scene session that starts with kissing and goes to oral ends with multiple orgasms. And then there's afterglow. Um, there's and just a lot more time orgasms afterwards. Right. Um, yes. The other, the, I will, I will caveat that though, to say that I think that, um, that great romance writers have made an art of the quickie also, but even though that might last, Last ten pages on on page, right? They have made an art of um, sort of like you know. I'm, I just read one a couple of weeks ago that it was one of those rock star romances, and like roadies <laughs> were around them, like cleaning up <laughs> gear, and they like he's boning the drummer, um, and it was such a great scene because I was like, okay, you're like creating a quickie here, knowing that like at any minute, like some some gearhead's gonna come and be like, we gotta move the drum kit. You know, sure. Well, but, and but the I other just thing feel is, like that's like a it's like a fun sort of craft thing as opposed right. to I'm worried my dad's gonna walk in on this, which is what happened to me like personally, right. where yes. it's like so mortifying and like all that you know, like there was no in that way. It feels like I wouldn't even say there's like a. Uh, is, I feel like the quickie thing is more of. Um, of an exhibitionist thing, if that makes sense. Right. It's exciting. There's risk-taking involved, whereas I think a lot of teenage sex, and I suppose we should move over to that part now, is uh, a lot of teenage sex doesn't involve risk-taking because the kids enjoy the fear of risk. It just involves risk-taking because there's no space for them to have a sex life, really. Um, obviously, there are, these are generalizations and blah, 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 but we're just talking about the general common uh, way of looking at it. And the, I, yeah, I remember, you know, are the parents asleep? Um, how many kids have been, you know, had a car die because they thought they could keep the radio on while they were making out in it? You know, uh, things like that where... There's just not a comfort and an and ease of access or space. Um, and also there's curfews and 
you know, my mom is coming home from work and we only have from three o'clock to five thirty or whatever it is. Right. Um, or like my parents are downstairs and my door is closed in any minute there and there's no lock and this is I'm right. just being dumb here. Yes. Right. Or we're at a party and this is not our house and we're in a room that doesn't belong to us and people could walk in and throw up or try to look for their coat or start smoking pot or whatever. So there's like a million areas that uh, you can be invaded upon in as a teenager. Okay, so let's maybe also look at how it how does that kind of writing, which might be what people have in their banks as this is what romance is, this is what sexual content is. I will go into this mode when that sort of thing happens, and not they may not do that consciously, but that's what they've absorbed through TV and movies and and books. So how is that different when you're talking about people that don't have the experience and are not old? They are young and unformed in some ways. Um, I think that, for one thing, you have to consider what the point of view is that you're using. A lot of romance, and there are exceptions, of course, but a lot of romance is done in third person with alternating points of view so that we can see um, kind of panoramically what's happening sexually and not have to believe that somebody is really narrating this in their head in first person and going, my nipples twitched in anticipation, you know, as if their mind would think like that. We know minds don't tend to think like that Anyway, they're not going to think like that, you know, in the moment. So third person is is a really good choice when you're talking about really long, detailed, exhaustive sex, because you can use all the adjectives you want. You can look at any point of or point of uh, view in the, the scene itself. You can, you know, look up on the ceiling if you want to. But if you're in first person, you have to be limited to what someone's actual brain might be thinking. And you have to still try to uh give the reader what he uh the reader needs to enter into the scene but you cannot be believable by having all sorts of baroque flowerly overly descriptive very exhaustive play by play movement so the point of view is a really big thing to come at first that will make a lot of decisions for you I think I, I agree. And, you know, it's funny because you and I in uh, prior to this, were having a, a conversation and I said, you know, we both write contemporary. So uh, it's, you know, in some ways, like our toolbox, particularly when you're getting to teenagers now in a contemporary setting, um, w- you know, we just know that that you know, teenagers don't say breasts or, you know, right. or areolas or whatever, you know, like that's just not necessarily the, like the, the glands of yes. his penis. Yes, yeah. yes. Or his length or whatever. Um, so we know that. Right. And so we then have to start pulling the, the things to say, well, you know, what do they say and what would they say and what did we say and, and start thinking about that. But I'm curious um, when you're writing or or maybe we pose this to the the wide world in general. But uh, sometimes where I have stumbled on flowery language when and flowery sort of romance language is when I am uh, reading young adult fantasy. And, you know, fantasy doesn't have sort of, it cannot fall back necessarily on, um, I, I always think about Perfectly, Perfectly Good White Boy and how... Um, 
your guy in it who I want to call Will, and it's not Will. Um, What is your guy's name? Sean. 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 Yeah. How Sean calls his junk the horn. And I love that. It's like my very favorite thing. And I always think about that, and I think, well, what's what's the fantasy equivalent? They don't get to call their junk the horn. Or maybe they do, and they're just, and like, this is where maybe fantasy writers aren't digging in enough. Um, But a lot of times, some of that language, I think, how are you how do you marry sort of the lyricism or the the flow of a fantasy kind of thing with um, still being true to the the younger point of view? Character? That's that's a super hard question, and I have absolutely no answer to it because it depends on the world you've built in the book. And it, Matt, it, you have to think for another five minutes. I know you've thought a million minutes on how your book is going to be constructed and what the world looks like, but you also have to think about it on this sexual level. What do people talk about when they talk about the physical body and bodily functions? What do they say when they're talking about affection or, you know, amorous interchange between people? What are the words for that? You get to make that shit up. You made everything else up in your fantasy world. So it's time to make that shit up, even if you're not going to use it. If you're not going to um, have sex and content in your book, then who cares, I suppose. But often fantasy does have a a romantic side or a Uh B plot. And it's what makes people love uh, fantasy a lot. And so how do we talk about that without all of a sudden now we're using words like manhood or girth or her soft, wet folds or her areola or, you know, tingles or whatever, when none of that diction, which is (laughs) one of my favorite funny words to use when none of that diction has been deployed previously and then suddenly you have this weirdness and this is why i think why fade to black happens because they're just like and kissing and uh, it was super great and fluffy and electric it felt good the end chapter three you know and you're just like dude you can't do that like i suppose you can because lots of people do i read a lot of fade to black it's fucking boring please don't do that if you uh, want to write sex but I think it's because there's been, you know, on a craft level, they haven't been thinking about what those, those questions. Words. Yes, that yeah. is true. And you know what? I should give a shout out to um, Sarah J. Jones, JJ's um, winter song, because she really dug in with it. She, um, I saw, she sent me her scenes and I, you know, threw them back and said, these are the questions I would look at. Like, what does she actually know about sex at this point? What are, you know, what what's her, you know, base of knowledge if she doesn't have a base of knowledge then why is she having cresting waves and i will tell you she doubled down and looked at everything from all those sides and it is very good she does a really really nice job um and that book comes out in early 2017 um okay we'll put that yeah, in the show notes but it she does a really really good job and i think it was because i think people sometimes when they're creating all these other worlds they forget that creating um, sort of a sexual base for um, a character or even a world is really critical too, um, particularly if you're going to have a romance as part of your subplot or your B plot. Is you know, and I think you and I have talked about this in a previous craft discussion. Is if 
if you can if you have maps at the beginning of your books like there there is a better than good chance that you should have also spent you know a, a 10 minutes thinking about what the language around sexuality and sex and sexual identity and all of that stuff is and and even courtship marriage uh body house jokes are there brothels? Do they sell sex? Uh, how does se- it, sex work look like in your world? Does that exist? You know, how do people uh, talk about affection? Like, this is not hard to do. It's just that nobody is making you do it. They're fine with fade to black, or they're so uncomfortable with dealing with it as an editor or a reader that they're fine with just going, I will fill in the blanks here. I'm not fine with that. I think that's fucking boring. I think that's why our culture is so weird about sex is that people aren't going to be clear and explicit and graphic and all the stuff that's interesting. Yeah. And or so, they're going to put it in and then they're going to just use a lot of cliches because they, you know, because there is a really deep and large canon of romance novels. So they just think, well, I'll just use that language. Um, I would also like to give a shout out to uh, Elizabeth Fama's plus one. Um, I think she handles uh, sex pretty well in that, particularly transactional sex. Um, She has this whole, I mean, it's very thoughtful, but she has this whole sort of subplot in there um, that involves like a transactional sex scene that you can see. She had to think a lot about this world and how you would get something and how when you have nothing, how you would get past guards and all this other stuff. It was very smartly done. Another issue, uh, another book that I want to pop up in here is like the issue of birth control, especially if you're talking about heterosexual sex um, in Graceling by Kristen Kishore. There is that is noted like the girl knows about how to prevent pregnancy. She takes these certain herbs and she's taught that as a young woman. And so, you know, you don't have to be like, well, my book is in a different realm. So, you know, does pregnancy happen or not? Like, that's the question. Do people have to worry about getting uh, sexually transmitted infections or not? Think about that for five minutes and then come up with a solve. It's that's your job. And, you know, yeah. it can be really fun if you it, think well, about it. It used to be like in vampire worlds that was like, a, you know, there was definitely not you couldn't get pregnant by vampires. And then that whole game changed. And now right. it has to be addressed. And it's super interesting to see how much it is addressed in the adult world. Um, and the same thing. I mean, I think about that Black Dagger Brotherhood and how <laughs> they are immune to STIs. So they're right. like fine being whores, essentially, like they are you know they are fine transacting in that way sexually um and so yeah it's a super interesting uh way of dealing with it and it's and it's probably something that you need to think about if you're going to include that uh content in your young adult novel too and with black dagger brotherhood which is definitely a world building thing like they also you know there's this kind of ridiculous size of the vampire men in their bodies and their of their penises and the amount of semen they put out and how they can yes. how they constantly hard right. constantly right. there's never constantly <laughs> drinking whiskey constantly driving giant black SUVs constantly <laughs> wearing leather pants they're the most masculine men that ever masculine yes. um, like the other yes. thing is like which makes the, the also which makes the uh, like the uh, 
also the heterosexuality and the homosexuality super interesting in that world too right. because it feels like there's a just a blanket sort of um hypersexuality that makes it less about uh gender or sex and sexual identity the other know? thing about young adult sex or teenage sex is that because sexual identity is still developing and because sexual experience is being acquired, it's not been really established. The stakes are totally different in a sex, uh, in a sexual uh, situation. They're different than when you're an adult because they ha- they mean something different, especially if it's something you've not done before or something that you've uh, been afraid to do or maybe wanted to try but weren't sure about or whatever. Um, because you haven't done those things before, you don't have comfort with them, they, they mean something totally different. So what's going on in your head is not just the, you know, ruthless pursuit of pleasure (laughs) and friction and whatnot. It's something else. There's there's something happening to you because you are leaving the side of childhood, you know, with each different act. And so that idea of the stakes are different. Um, Sex has a different meaning to married people, has a different meaning for single adults. It has a different meaning for young people who are just embarking down that lane. And so you can't, you cannot just say, well, sex is sex is sex. That's not true. It has a different valence depending on the age you're at, I think. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I mean, I was thinking about, remember you sent me that book from your friend, Rachel, is it Rachel Gold, My Year Zero? Is that yes. Okay. So that has a female, female sex scene at the end of it. And it's super interesting how she ends up describing the whole thing because I thought, oh, that's right. This is exactly how that would feel with this being new is that she like she offhandedly sort of mentions the whole time I was thinking, oh, maybe she's just fade to black in these other scenes. But then in that actual sex scene, she says like, oh, she had never touched me there before. And then you start realizing sort of all the psychological implications of what that meant that the you know the one main character was sort of always doing the touching and all of that stuff and it's something that's really unique to first person um YA narratives when you have that kind of thing when you start thinking like oh what is all of my experience or lack of experience mean what does it mean that you know this is where my head is and I think that that's so critical um because I think what they're trying to do what what you know good young adult stuff is trying to do is engage the reader in a a lot of internal you know I would say at least especially the first person stuff is is engage them in a lot of internal strife around the idea of sexuality and that book does it really really well um and also to uh the I recently read um Brett Brent Harbinger's Three Truths and a Lie and there's a scene in there that's hilarious to me which is the two guys have sex and then they both later admit that they um 
we're thinking about the other guy who's at staying at the cabin with them. <laughs> and I just love that because for like, you know, it, in the first person you get that he's thinking about this other guy and he's like, feels bad about it. But you know, then the scene after where they actually admit that. And I thought, Oh God, there's something really refreshing about that is that no one here has like no one's varsity level, even though this couple has been there, you know, been together a while, even still there's like a newness to all of this. Um, and I think that that's really important, particularly, um, I, I, there was a article, I think going around Twitter the other day that I told you about, about, you know, hetero fluid and like, you know, like the new normative in terms of sexuality. And, you know, I said, well, to me, I always sort of approach that as the binary is yes or no. And I think a lot of times um, in young adult novels, like that becomes a different question is figuring out if you even want this and if you're what your binary is. It's not like we're definitely having sex. It's, you know, at least to me, the good sex scenes in, in YA is figuring out like, okay, you know, um, am I in for this? Do I want to do this? Do, does he want to do this? Does she want to do this? And started working through that, mm-hmm. um, I think is really, really critical because it, it, it intimates sort of a, a a lack of experience, even if you've been partnered with someone for a while. Um, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, I think there's another another book we could throw. God, we're throwing books out, out left and right here. Is um, underneath everything by Marcy Beller Paul, which I might have talked about before. Oh, yes. But like, it talks about how the stakes. I mean, you you don't see that explicitly, but the girl pursues sex with this boy and. The stakes are different for her. The, the The reason she's going into it isn't because it's this boy and I want to feel good now. It, there, It's a different experience. It's something she's doing because of all the other stuff going on in the book and the friendships and the, the strife that she's having with the one particular girl. And you know that the boy has a different kind of stakes. What's at stake for him is different than what's at stake for her, but they are both somehow coming together on unequal footing. And not to say that there's not consent, it's just that they're doing it for totally different reasons. With uh, traditional romance genre, you generally, the people are doing it because they have an uncontrollable lust for each other and they want to do all these things with the other's body and the that is taking over them. And so it's about their bodies and what their bodies can do for each other. Whereas for teenagers, sometimes it's, sometimes it's that. And then it's because of some other thing you're doing this because now I'm going to be old or now I'm going to be treated um, like someone who knows what's going on, or now I'm going to make him or her love me or I'm going to get or crave me or want me. Yes. I think that's exactly right. It's funny. um, Jojo, her English class the other day read uh, that very famous Joyce Carol Oates story, which I cannot remember right now, but it's the one that they made into that Laura Dern movie called Sweet Talker. Um, And I'll look up what the story is called, but essentially um, Jojo said to me, Oh, you know, I, I read an article and Joyce Carol Oates said that that, that story was about the dangers of vanity. And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah, I didn't think it was about that at all. And I said, well, what did you think? And she said, I think it's what happens to teenagers when they want someone to really like them. I think all teenagers really want someone to like them. 
And I thought this is a super interesting thing for my 14-year-old child who is just starting to want that right. and, and be interested in that and figure that out to say is that she doesn't see it as a cautionary tale about being vain or, you know, and, and I think like what Joyce Carol Oates meant by vanity was probably, you know, that the, the same kind of idea just expressed differently. But for Jojo to really simplify it down to say, no, I thought it was what happened like that sometimes when like you're willing to do a lot of stuff just for someone for someone to like you and like you're willing to blow off your friends or you're willing to do all these different things and I thought what a really interesting insight that a 14 year old has to that to say I'm willing to do this because I you know I want someone to like me this much and so much of to me early sexual experience is driven by that right that that that's why there's not you know like why sometimes I feel very dubious when there's uh it, you know where where girls are having orgasms super easily and no problem and everything else I think wow are you so outside your own head like are you not worrying because it took me a really long time to figure that out as a teenager and I think part Part of that was because I was so in my own head about all these different things. That Joyce Carol Art story, which is called Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? Also, Thank the you. girl is sort of, you know, she's sort of all about her. You don't, she doesn't start to notice that the guy, Arnold Friend, which is the grossest name yeah, ever. Hey, Friend. Um, hey, Friend. Oh, my gosh. I, just, I love that you know this story. Well, and she... She starts to notice how grotesque he is as he as the time goes on, and she's actually paying attention to him, not how she feels about being with him and how she's viewed. And you know, it's, she starts to think that maybe he's wearing a wig, and there's all this kind of stuff that's revealed that she quits her focus on other things and puts it on him actually and yeah. so sees as him. she gets out of her own needs yeah. like or out of her own desire to be wanted she starts being able to see as he becomes and it's a super interesting thing because you start saying like what's the breaking point where you realize like and and i feel like that this is sort of something that d- developmentally happens what's the breaking point when you realize the person you're with is kind of a douche what's right. the breaking point where you realize like this is actually kind of dangerous behavior And it's really hard when you start looking at that because, you know, there were certain things that I'm like, man, I sucked that up when I was 15 years old and I never would deal with that right now as a, you know, as a 40 year old woman, I would never go for that. Um, And again, this speaks to the idea of experience and, and what you wanted at that time as a teenager versus what you want now. And I think part of why I am, I tend to be overly critical of YA books that have sort of the romance packaging in them, the romance language packaging is that I feel like you're missing. It's a lot of blind spots. Then you're missing, you know, intention you're missing, um, the sort of internal stuff that's going on. Um, and so, Carrie, maybe you and I should talk a, a few uh, craft questions that we think that maybe writers can pose to start thinking about these things. Yeah. Would you? So, yeah. these are for writers and for 
you know, readers who are reading something and maybe going, why is this not working? These could be analytical questions that you ask as well and maybe interrogate the text a little bit and say, well, maybe this is why that sex scene fell apart and then it was the backbone of the story and then the whole story fell apart. Um, and this is another thing for authors to look at too when you feel all nervous because I can't tell you how many people email me and say, I'm so, how do I do this? I'm really nervous and can you look at this? And Is this right? And blah, blah, blah. And so it's something that people freak out about. And the, here's some questions that we could throw to you um, to kind of keep creating an adolescent who has a really wide aperture on the world of sex and sexual behavior, which gets a little more narrow the older you get, you know? And and uh, I mean, I don't think that's a bad thing, but that's the difference. Right. And, well, and that goes to the idea of what I was talking about, of the binary, which is, are you game for this or not? Right. And when you're young and you know nothing, at least to me, like, the only thing that made me not game for something was if I was afraid of it. There wasn't anything that was necessarily off the table unless it provoked fear in me. If that makes sense. Um, And fear can be a really heavy and heady, uh, you know, reason not to do things. I think it was funny because I was talking on, I said something on Twitter the other day about people making bad choices and how I keep seeing all these, these different reviews of things where they say, oh, this, this girl made all these really bad choices, this teenage girl. And I thought, God, those are the books I want to read. If you're making good choices, like I don't really trust you as right. a teenager I don't, because like I don't that's care. how you learn I mean, I shit. want <laughs> my living human teenagers in my life to, you know, be satisfied and happy and well-adjusted, but I don't really care about that in fiction. Um, Yes, agreed. And but and then at the same time, um, Martha said, well, I only made good choices because I was so afraid of making bad well, choices. And some, so I do think that there's something to be said about fear-based. Right, and some kids know? also things they're afraid of are also attractive. You know, their curiosity will override their fear. So there, there's a whole bunch of different ways of looking at this. Um, so here's some questions, and we'll put them in the show notes too. Uh, what is my character's relationship with masturbation and their body? What has my character been taught about sex and desire, whether formally or informally? Um, how does my character express affection? Also, the people around them, how do they express affection, and how does the actual world they inhabit, what is a normal expression of affection that someone would see? Again, remember, sex is not something we typically get to see, um, unless your world is totally wonderful and different and allows that to happen in the middle of the street. But anyway, how, how does that look? Uh, ask yourself those questions, mull that over a little bit. Yeah. Um, also, too, like just going off the idea of what is my character's relationship with their body? What is my character's level of physical comfortability? Um, how do they exist in their own skin? I think this is really critical because um, I think that, you know, in the romance world, it seems like everyone's like fairly OK with getting naked, naked regularly um, and not very shy about it. Or if they are shy about it, like the other person immediately like quells their fears because they say how amazing they are and everything else. And I keep thinking like, man, so much of my own sort of early sexual life was just being super, super self-conscious about my body um, and what I looked like naked. And there was no way I could be completely in the game of that because I was so, you know, I, it's like the clueless thing. Did I stumble into bad lighting? Right. I mean, it was that I was always so, so self-conscious about that. And I recently talked to a guy and I I said, you know, if, if you could, you know, 
tell what was one thing about your sexual life that you wish that your partner knew and he said that that I was super self-conscious about my body which hearing that from a guy was like fascinating to me because I thought really like you had that too because I was so in my own head I wasn't even thinking like this guy is worried about stumbling into bad light also um so that's one thing uh also what does my character find attractive in general um and attractive Interaction not meaning uh, not being limited to physical beauty, but what's the marker of what complements the character? What is uh, what is he or she lacking that she, he or she looks to a partner to balance out? Um, if that makes sense, does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, well, because you see that in a traditional romance novel, you know the. The super type A person meets the wild and crazy person, and then they have a balanced mixture of of both opposite ends, and it feels good. And often we do seek that opposites in relationships, but often we seek things that we aren't able to do in ourselves, and so we admire them in other people. And speaking of the nudity thing, like the guys when I was like one of my first boyfriends, he was so... um His comfort with being naked was so foreign to me because that wasn't endemic in my own family. My family was furtive about nudity, especially my dad. Like he even used a different bathroom than us because it was like, no, that you girls are there and I'm going to go down into the basement far away because you guys are girls and you have tampons and whatever. And so like, I never saw him naked. My mom was a little more, but we weren't a naked family. And so the first time I was around a guy who just was like, he took his pants off and he like stood up and walked somewhere and I I could see his whole butt. And I was just like, wow, like my body doesn't move like that when it's naked. Like I've never done that in front of other people. And it just knocked me the fuck out. And um, so whenever I see that in somebody, I'm just like, oh, that's, oh, I, I fall in love with that. And which is, you know, part of why I like my current husband is he's, he would be naked all the time if that was allowed. Um, (laughs) If left to his, and you know what? I also think what's interesting about your little anecdote there is that doesn't that make for a really interesting character in a story is to say like, Oh, my family was always like an open door in the bathroom kind of thing. These are little details that you can start thinking about. Like, does your, did your family, you know, leave the door, the bathroom door open? while they were blow drying their hair and their bra and panties or were they you know closed door i mean i think like those are the start the the details of sort of world building that starts making you understand everything about uh your character's you know sexual identity sexual agency sexuality in general is when you start thinking about how far back you would need to go to start going oh what what does their world look like well and you and i start with sex and other people start with the other parts of the world. So for me, this is not that difficult because it's the first thing that comes. But if you're doing this and you're like, well, I have everything else, but this part is weird. This is this is why. And you shouldn't feel bad that that's how you start. Like everybody does things differently. A couple other questions. Um, is your character able to be open about their sexuality with their family or their community? Um, how has your character been shown love and support from others? Uh, did did they get any love? How did that look? Um, are there certain societal ideal beauty standards in this world? Um, how does your character compare with those ideals? Do they bother them? Do they uh, find them stupid? Uh, do they aspire to them? Yeah, we should give a shout out to Shannon Gibney's um, 
see no color because that has that really excellent scene where the guy says like how much he likes her ass and because she's like a uh she's adopted she has she's biracial she has white adoptive parents like that kind of thing was so shocking to her and I love that scene so much because she was like like secretly pleased but also like wait what right you know and I just thought it was really really beautifully done um because it had so much sort of the the shock in the same way that seeing a naked body the first time if you're not comfortable with that like that does the exact same thing right is that the beauty standards or um and i feel like the boyfriend was the boyfriend african-american yeah in that yeah Yeah. so like that was the other thing is like you know this idea of the ass and like you know but she doesn't it doesn't it's not a cliche i feel like she unpacks it so well that it's really well done um but the other thing you might have trouble with when is asking yourself the kinds of words your character uses to describe any sort of sensory responses. So this comes into play when you're talking about orgasm or you're talking about, you know, feeling good or becoming aroused, which aroused is the grossest word. But um, if it really is, what are, but also too, like, so is wet. I don't know. Well, like I guess here's the, like, I mean, aroused is just clinical. It doesn't fit with most people's narration about making out with somebody or having sex with somebody. So if you're wondering like how to describe those things, how else are you describing sensory responses to good foods or the sunshine on their skin or the feeling of a clean shirt or something that smells wonderful? Like fucking plow that for all of its worth, because you've already done some of that work. What is the diction that you use to discuss those things? Why can't you use those in sex or sexual description? You can totally do that. And that also is native to the habitat of your character's vocabulary in their brain. Those are the words they're going to use anyway. That is an excellent point. Um, I mean, just think about, so, like, I I think about um, how you very rightly, when I one time sent you a lady head scene, and you said, okay, but he would never say he traced his fingers over something. (laughs) And I was like, you are right. What a, I, like, pulled that one out of my, like, romance toolbox. Um, And it was so smart, because then I started thinking, like, yeah, well, if he's, like, touching something, like, you know, pomegranate seeds like what would that look like or if he's like you know digging out the inside of an orange like how would he describe that or even if he's like feeling the surface of a marble table like he wouldn't say he traced his fingers over the marble table. I palpated. Yeah and and that's the other thing like romance novels will bust out the thesaurus in force because they want to be able to say all these different ways of licking someone's nipple. You know, I laved it, you know, I uh, swamped it, you know, with saliva and you're just like, Jesus (laughs) Christ, but whatever, like that's part of the the tradition. I'm not going to. Well, and also too, in romance novels, we're frequently looking at multiple scenes. So part of that is just an issue of creativity, right? right? Is that if you're going to have four sex scenes in a book that is, you know, 250 pages long, you know, then like you have to get a little bit more creative with, you know, whatever you're doing to nipples. Right. Um, And I think, you know, that's where you start getting into the thesaurus like type of things. Or, you know, the other thing is you get really creative with how you're having sex. Right. Um, And I think one thing that I would 
just I think that's worth pointing out here is one of the things that um, has always sort of bothered me about YA in terms of sex is that it does feel pretty frequently that we go from kissing or makeout sessions and maybe like a boob grab into <laughs> like we're ready to have sex. And to me, I'm like, gosh, do, do we not think that bases exist? Like, I just think that in some ways it feels like people are more anxious about writing about blowjobs or ladyhead or a lot of other things or hand jobs or finger banging or whatever. Right. Like, I feel like a lot of that stuff ends up not being included in the novel. So we're going to go from they were kissing to they had sex. And I think, like, the, man, that is a huge ramp up. And to me, at least in my life as I was going through this, like, I mean, with some partners, I would get to certain bases and that would be it, you know? And then six, that was six weeks and it took me a while to get there, like, before, like, because of time and because of, you know, trepidation or because of all these different reasons or comfort level or attraction or whatever. Maybe one person I would get to this point and then one person I would get to, you know, base three versus base one and it just would depend, right? And I think, first of all, with every partner that's different, but also we have to acknowledge that there actually is a buffet, that there are guys that you can date for six months and all that happens is that you give them, you know, four hand jobs and put before they finally say, could you get some lotion or lube? And then, you know, like that's the stuff that, and that happens and that's an experience. And so it doesn't always go from like what I call zero to 60 where it's, you're either kissing or you're having sex. It seems like there's, wouldn't it be so refreshing just to read a book where, you know, the max they do is hand jobs? Well, or, or you, you know, know, all the outer course, as if that doesn't count. Yes. And like the other thing is, there's so much, there's such a universe of no- negotiation involved and in like even getting to touch someone's boob, like to just pass over it as if it's nothing to, you know, both of the people involved is dumb. I think that that's. Right, you're missing you, out. You, don't you? Yes, and also too, because you start thinking like, and this is internal character stuff, right? Like, I'm like, ah, uh, you know, I'm gonna let this woman touch my boob today, so I'm not wearing a sports bra. I'm, I'm gonna do one of the strap right with the like the thing in front, right? So that the, the clasp in front, so it's easy access. Like you think about these things in prep, you know, well, in the same way that you think about there, shaving or other things. There are you know? men that don't understand, and I've written about this myself, but it's like they don't understand, like. You can't just dig around in there or like push the bra up so that your neck is feeling like you're being strangled by the the bra straps or there there there's just a lot of different ways of getting to second base that are interesting and you know, some people have a better way of handling it. They know how to unhook it and they're smooth and it's fine, but like yeah, there is a whole universe in just touching someone's boob and knowing what to do and whether it's a sports bra or an underwire bra or a bralette there's just a million things and so to to just jump from that is dumb and the other thing is I remember back the dude I had the cheating with when I was in study abroad in South America he had this girlfriend right and I didn't have any condoms because I didn't travel I didn't roll with condoms because my last boyfriend 
I was always like, that's your problem. You go buy them and you make sure we have them. But, you know, I have to take the risk of being pregnant. So fuck off. You can buy the condom. So I was kind of an asshole about it. Um, you, you mean you were right? I was right. It? And yes, so yes. I, when I t- went to South America, I didn't have any. And we weren't supposed to be having this sexual relationship anyway. So he wasn't stalking them. He was always trying to, you know, resist doing this with me. So I never bought them and he never bought them either. And so we had all sorts of sex that never involved using birth control because it was like both of us were in this stalemate. Like we can't admit that this is what's going on. So, and I was kind of stubborn. Like that's, you know, I'm not doing that fucker. Like, and he didn't know that because I didn't never explain it to him. But anyway, like, but yet, yes, this- I had the exact same thing. I mean, I had an entire summer of unprotected sex because I was unable to. I mean, the, these are cautionary tales, I guess, to other people. But um, because I was unable to say, like, by the way, you know, I'm not on the pill. Like, we're just doing this. And, you know, I'm just hoping for the best. Right. And really, I mean, it was stupid because it wasn't even like that dumb rhythm method. He didn't even pull out. Like, I think he just assumed and I could not say it. Um, and I think like some of those things end up being really important because you start wondering like, OK, well, what was the background with me that I couldn't say to this dude, even though, you know, I was a feminist and I was, you know, very sexually open about so many other things. What was the background with me that I couldn't say? Hey, glove up, man. Right. You know, Um, so I think like, but again, a lot of times what I would do is just knowing because I was, you know, kind of doing lunar reception, you know, I was kind of cycling, like tracking my cycle. I know the worst. Don't listen to me. Um, But because I was tracking, I also would get really creative when I knew I was ovulating. So I would be like, oh, no, like then I would do all these different kinds of things because I knew that I was ovulating and that we couldn't have, you know, that kind of intercourse. Um, So and again, like these are things that I feel like we tend to shy away from and I can't decide again and maybe we'll get information back on this, but I can't decide if it's because. You know, an editor is saying, hey, yeah, you can have sex in your book, but you can't have a blowjob scene or, you know, this becomes really instructive or I don't want this in there. Um, I can't decide what exactly is causing people to shy away from the the myriad possibilities well, that I think it's exists for because there's yeah. there's a context. Right. And it's the same reason why when you're talking about um having diversity and inclusion in books, why people are like, you know, having pushback against that because they're like, well, but you know, a book is a book is a book. No, some stories have not been told. Right. And same with sex. A lot of sex has been seen as a terrible, terrible choice that has terrible consequences and no one is going to live to tell about it because there it's a life destroying pick when you do that in a a young adult story. Oh, you had sex. Now you have a baby or an abortion or a disease or um, a terrible reputation. So a lot of people say, well, in the spirit of remedying that history, which is very real, we are going to show sex that is positive and sensible and rational and um, feels good and involves mutuality in all respects and blah, blah, blah. And I think like that's the response to the fact that sex has always been a scary horror show. And so we want everything to be sex positive. But at the same time, I guess my confidence is in with 
with readers who will be reading these things and saying, wow, do I want that to happen in my life? Because I, I'm seeing how all of these different, you know, lunarception is how very Catholic of you, Krista, you know, um, <laughs> know. It, <the>, pagan <laughs> actually, even God. And so like that whole thing, like this gives us more to talk about instead of saying, yes. and then they both got naked and felt really great in their bodies. And then they both pleasured each other till they passed out the end. Like that is not interesting to me. Um, although yes, we need to see that sex can be had and people can live through it, but relationships are complicated. Sexuality is complicated. Sexual behavior is a amazing activity that involves so much. Uh, <sighs> there's just so much going on there. You can't be like, Oh, and then, then they put on their seatbelts and no one died in a car accident. Like that's, not how I want to look at this. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think, and I think actually that drops you so quick out of a world. I mean, I will, I, you know, I can't tell you how many times I'll be reading something and then I'll think, no, nope. Well, <laughs> and it really will. And it mostly has to do with sex. I, I, you know, I'll say something and, and it'll be like, you know, little things like seeing like, you know, someone who's, you know, a YA person who's got, you know, like it just happens to conveniently have this box of condoms or myriad kinds of right. condoms. And I was like, well, you're an off of a gold star player that you have like different kinds of condoms. Jesus, like to, to even like nod up and go to the Walgreens and get my own condoms. Like I wasn't going to be buying multiple kinds. Right. It was like, you know, I mean, seriously, who does that? I mean, there are things like that that I see that sometimes I go, like wow that you've dropped me out of a world that could have been really glorious well and very authentic and honest and so i think i tend to say instead of you know let's shy away from authenticity and go for fantasy wish fulfillment i want the authenticity when it comes to sex in the same way um because i think we're not getting that authenticity in other venues we're right. not getting it in sex ed we're not getting it in porn we're not getting it in romance novels if you you know if if this becomes if you know jojo comes home for me to me and says my health tech class was kind of garbage and we didn't do any we didn't spend any time to, on sex ed i'm just going to have to get it from ya books you know at least i can hand her yours <gasps> And feel right. confident. Well, <laughs> or, you know, Erica Lorraine Scheidt's uh, uses for boys, which has my all-time, one of my all-time favorite sex scenes in it. What, um, you know, and the, feel confident about it, you know. The other thing we should say, because we've got to wrap up, is um, if you're kind of wondering about getting into the space of what it's like with first sex, what we've done for this show is I've pulled together a list of really interesting um, poems that talk about first sex or young sex and we'll put them a list up on the show notes we don't have links for all of them because i'm not about to steal people's poetry if it hasn't been paid for um so if you really want to dork it up and you like poems then you can go seek these out so we'll offer all that information up and then the other thing we'll do in the tiny letter is if you want extra content krista and i in our tiny letter will talk about our favorite YA sex scenes a little bit and we'll discuss them in that so um oh that's such a good idea yeah. i didn't even know we were doing that for our tiny uh, letter that's yeah perfect. we're totally doing good that job. just good just job. decided so anyway um check it, that all out at the oral podcast.com and you can find all the links to the other books we've talked about there as well 
So, yeah. And if you have any feedback um, and want to talk to us about any of these things, um, we want to, first of all, thank all the people who have been writing us. We love it. We've been thinking a lot about your ideas and the things that you're talking about. So uh, keep doing that. And that's at feedback at the oral history podcast.com. So until next time, remember, sex and books are two things that are better when you talk about them. Bye. See you next time. Bye.